Ah, Hare Krishna. Uh, it is Sunday, August 18th, 2019, 8.30 a.m. in San Diego. That's for future historians. Um, so welcome to the Bhagavatam class. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So today we're going to read what we could call Avatara theology in the Bhagavatam. Uh, today we're beginning with uh, text number we're in the first canto, chapter three, and uh, we're going to begin with text four. In the first few chapters, there was a lot of discussion between Sutta Goswami and the sages at Namisharanya, headed by Shonika. There was a lot of discussion of Krishna's descent into this world. Uh, and the importance of Krishna coming to the world, why he came, what he did, and what is the aftermath of his visit. And uh, there was also discussion, there was a general discussion of the fact that Krishna does have many avatars, that he comes in different forms. So these things were referred to generally. Now in chapter 3, we're going to go more specifically into the Lord's avatars, his descents, literally. He descends, and um, with more details about what these incarnations actually are. And so this discussion uh, began in the first verse, Jagrahe Podusham Rupam, uh, he took on the Purusha form with a discussion of Krishna's avatars that specifically specifically create the universe and uh, maintain the universe, the Purusha avatars. So it began with that, how Krishna creates the world. Uh, Mahavishnu and... Uh, and now we're going to uh, chat in verse 3. Prabhupada explains that as, uh, let's see, I think believe referring to Garbo Dakshai Vishnu. I'm looking at Prabhupada's purport here. Uh, Actually, that's verse, he says, and his purport to verse 2. But here in verse 4, so let's just get to verse 4 and see what where we are now in this discussion of Krishna's descent, his avatars into this world, and specifically now his creation avatars, and uh, how he creates the world and how he maintains his creation, maintains the universes. So in text 4, it says, Pashantya do rupam adhabra chakshusha, Sahasrapa Dauru Bhujananad Bhutam Sahasra Murdha Shavanakshi Nasikam Sahasra Moryambara Kundalola Sat. So here it has the sort of the, the general Pashanti. They see, not referring to any specific person, but 
the idea is those who are capable of seeing, those who have the spiritual vision, those who have the knowledge, they see. Uh, so here it is said, Pashanti, they see adorupam, that form, that form, adabra chakshusha, uh, and they see it with ample vision. Adabra, dabra in Sanskrit means very scarce or scanty, there's not very much of something, and so adabra is the opposite, ample, uh, when there's a lot of something. So when they have their this ample vision, they have this broad vision, uh, people who have this can really see things. Uh, they see that form, adorupam. And this form is adbhutam. It's amazing because sahasrapadorubhujananadbhutam. Because it has thousands of legs and uh, thighs, arms, faces. That's amazing. I mean, you don't normally see that every day. You don't see people that have thousands of all these body parts. And of course, this can be referring to Krishna who pervades this world. Krishna, if you think about what the universal form is, remember earlier it was said the universal form is kalpitam, it's imagined, it's sort of an imagined meditation. But it's an imagined meditation which gets at a very important truth of Krishna, uh, namely that he's all pervading. And uh, so he's only one God, and yet his eyes are everywhere because he's seeing everything. And the examples given often in our literature that uh, there's one sun shining. However, uh, unlimited people in the solar system can see that sun, even from our Earth. For example, right now there are probably billions of people in different parts of the world, depending on the time zones, I won't go into the time zones, but there could be billions of people seeing the sun, and each one sees the sun, as Prabhupada always explains, over his or her head or, or in their part of the world. So one could see the sun in California, one could see the sun in New York, or in, uh, well, I won't say London. I mean, sometimes you see the sun in London, Italy, so you can, so everyone sees the sun as local. The sun is right here where I am, and yet the sun is really just in one place. So that's the examples given. It's a good example that everyone can see Krishna uh, in their own part of the world. Everyone can see Krishna on their own planet, in their own universe. And so it appears that Krishna, in fact, Prabhupada used to call the Paramatma form the localized the localized um, form of the Lord in the sense that you see it locally. By the way, the word local is from Sanskrit loka, in case you're interested in um, language, uh, location, locus in Latin, that's all Sanskrit loka. Anyway, so in that sense, if you mean, if, if you mean the universal form of Krishna, which is an imagined meditation, then what, what the universal form does is it shows you a truth about God. The truth about God is that he's all-pervading. As Krishna says in the, in the Gita, chapter 9, maya tatami sarvam, that all this world is pervaded by me. 
jagat, all this world of yakta murtina, my unmanifested form. So Krishna is everywhere. He pervades everything. And so since we cannot be in everywhere at the same time, we cannot actually see Krishna everywhere at the same time because we are always in one place. And therefore, there is this meditation on the universal form where you do see, in a sense, Krishna everywhere by seeing his unlimited uh, body parts. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it means spiritual body. Eyes, ears, arms, legs, and so on. So it's a, it, it's it's a it's an, a, a meditation on Krishna, which reveals a theological truth that he's actually everywhere at all times. So Sahasra Murda, thousands of heads and Shavana, ears, Akshi, eyes, Nasikam, nostrils. You've probably noticed that the words nose or nostril are Sanskrit Nasika. Nasal. So Sahasramoli and thousands of crowns or diadems, it's called, or you know, fancy stuff you wear on your head with jewels. Sahasramoliambara and garments uh, and kundala, earrings, ulasat, ulasat shining. So this is uh, the spectacular vision of the Lord. And then text five of chapter three, first canto says, Etan nanavataranam nidhanam bijam avyayam yasyang shang shena sijante devatiryam naradayaha. So, this form of the Lord, which is all pervading, is the nidhana. It is the uh, container, or it is the like the treasure house, or not, or store of uh, many avatars, of many avatars. I'll tell you what Nidana means, because here uh, the verse says that this form of the Lord is the Nidana of many avatars. So going back to the verse, uh, so the Nidana of many avatars and also the, and this is a, a, a common phrase, a very beautiful poetic phrase, bijamabhyam, the unperishing seed. So a seed, of course, bija means seed. It's, things grow out of seeds. And uh, in the material world, there's like, let's say, an apple seed. Uh, then once the seed grows into a tree, the seed is gone. But here the concept, and this, you find the same uh, phrase, actually, the Gita, Bijam Abhyayam, Krishna says, I am the unperishing seed. So Bijam uh, that means it's a seed that grows into something, but the seed is still there, and it's endlessly, unlimitedly producing more amazing creations. So that is the Bijam Abhyayam, a phrase that's used uh, in our literature, the unperishing seed. And then it said, yes, yang shang shen. Angsha means a part, a part of something. And uh, Krishna says, for example, in the in chapter 15 of the Gita, that mamaivangsha jiva loke jiva bhuta sanatana, the eternal living being is actually my angsha. It's part of me alone, the living being is part of me alone. So that's angsha, 
And uh, for example, in the Mahabharata, uh, the section in the Adi Parva that describes how so many demigods and also asuras, so many demons, uh, expanded themselves through different parts of themselves to appear in this world. It's like the Pandavas, you know, Indra, you know, uh, Arjuna was born from Indra and Yudhisthira from Dharmaraj and um, Bhima from Vayu. So in a sense, the, those three Pandavas and then of course the twins, Nakula and Sahadeva appeared from the Ashwins. So they, all the five Pandavas were Angshas of different powerful demigods. So uh, here it says, yes, Yang Shangshena, that by the parts and parts of the parts of the Lord, because uh, you have, for example, Krishna can expand himself as his, as a portion, as a part, and that part, for example, Brahma. Brahma is an Angsha of, of Vishnu a part of an expanded part, empowered part of Vishnu. And uh, then Vish, uh, Brahma also expands and in the sense that he creates so many other living beings. So here, therefore you have the word angsha angsha, the part of a part. So yes, yangsha angshena, by whose part of a part, srijante are created devatiryam naradayaha. Uh, gods, devas, uh, tirya, animals, nara, human beings, etc. Because there are many, many species. So, eta nana vatara nam, nitanam, bijam abhyayam, jasyam shangshena, sijante devatiryam naradeha. So, we're getting into the creation of the universe and the different expansions of the Lord that, that do that. Then in text six, uh, we're going to get into, we're, now we're moving past the Purusha avatars, the avatars who are directly responsible for creating and maintaining the world. And now we're going to, you could say the Lord's, uh, not necessarily all uh, Leela avatars, but Leela avatars, Yuga avatars, uh, the Lord's avatars uh, for pastimes uh, to provide uh, the authorized uh, liberation process for different ages and for other purposes, just, you know, basic cosmic maintenance. So Saiva, Saiva, he alone, Pratamang, at first, the first one, Deva, so he, uh, he alone, God, uh, Komarang Sargamashita accepted the uh, a sage creation, Komara or child, uh, a, a, a creation or a, a creation of an avatar, you could say, as, as, as a child or as children, and Chacharam, Duscharam, Brahma, and in that form uh, executed uh, Brahmacharyam, that which is hard to do. He did what is hard to do, Brahmacharyam, celibacy, Akanditam, unbroken celibacy. So uh, anyway, I won't go to, but so this is the four Kumaras. The four Kumaras, so their celibacy is so important. Uh, I'm not going to get into old school sannyasi grihasta bashing here. So don't, don't worry. Don't hit the off button yet. Uh, but... No matter what order of life one is in, really, brahmachari, grihasta, vana, prasta, sannyasi, 
because in every order of life, or how should I put it, there is no ashram, there's no order of life in the Vedic system where one is having sex all the time, hopefully. I mean, I mean, there's no order in which you're supposed to do that. And you can't physically have sex all the time anyway. And so it's understood in this world, sex is limited just because of our physical limits. And then there are also emotional limits to sex for people who are sort of humans. There are emotional limits to sex. And ultimately there are, um, how should I put it? The more one experiences a higher taste, the more one experiences pure existence, shudham sattam, the more one experiences pure existence and the happiness that comes from goodness, from virtue, from unselfishness, and the happiness that comes from seeing, realizing directly that I am not this body, I am the soul within this body. In other words, the more one's spiritual knowledge or even one's uh, just pious knowledge, knowledge of goodness, the more that expands, the more one sees sex and the physical pleasures of sex uh, relatively. In other words, to see something relatively means that you see it in relation to something else. So that uh, I may want to do something, but then I consider, well, if I do that, something else will happen. Like, for example, let's say I may, may want to eat a certain food, but if I do, I can't digest it and I'm going to really suffer or I'm not going, I'm going to be sick or I'm going to be overweight or, or something undesirable is going to happen. Something's going to happen that I don't want in my life. And so if it were the case, if it were the case that there are no consequences uh, arising out of sex pleasure, you just, let's say someone just engages in some form of sex, and uh, let's say the person on a physical level enjoys the experience. And then if nothing else happened, it had absolutely no psychological consequences. It had no physical consequences. It had no spiritual consequences. It had no effect on my consciousness, in other words, or on my physical or mental health. If that were the case, then someone could say, well, if it feels good and there are no negative consequences, then do it. But of course, there are consequences. There actually are consequences and therefore it, it comes with a price. I mean, everything comes with a price in this world. For example, you may test drive a car and think, I, I really like this car, but can you afford it? How much is it going to cost? And is it going to pollute the environment? So. Uh, an intelligent person before choosing anything, whether it's, you know, what to eat or if or when or how much to have sex or, or anything, where to live and who to accept as friends and what kind of occupation to accept and whether or not I should chant Hare Krishna. I mean, we have to study the consequences of things. And that's really what it means to be intelligent you have to see that every action uh, is not isolated. There are no absolutely 
isolated actions. Every action occurs within a chain of causality. For example, the reason I am giving this class right now is because a lot of other things happened, such as, for example, when I was uh, a teenager, I became dissatisfied with materialism, although I was still very much involved in it, but I became dissatisfied with it. And then, I mean, we all have our stories, and then so many things happened. Then Prabhupada came to my university, and I heard Prabhupada speak, and then I went to a Hare Krishna temple in Los Angeles, on La Cienega Boulevard. So all these things happen. I read a book, Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. I chanted Hare Krishna. And then, you know, and then I actually <laughs> joined the Hare Krishna movement, believe it or not. And, um, and then so many things have happened. Actually, I'm just about now at my 50-year anniversary of uh, really 50 years of being in the Hare Krishna movement. So as you know, and, and for all of us, I mean, so many things have happened in our lives. We've enjoyed so many things. We've suffered so many things. We've met people. We have, you know, formed relationships. We have ended relationships. We've gone to different places. We have indulged ourselves. We have denied ourselves. I mean, we've done so many things. Everyone has done so many things. And as a result of everything I've done so far, here I am in San Diego, California, uh, giving a Bhagavatam class, uh, speaking to my computer, who's actually a living entity. Just kidding. Just, you know, giving a Bhagavatam class or trying to. So, so what, what, what I mean to say here is that for all of us, everything we do, occurs within a causal chain. Now that should not be taken too far. Taking it too far means you think life is deterministic. In other words, based on everything that happened to me in the past, it is determined. In other words, I have to do what I'm doing now. I have to say what I'm saying now. I don't have free will because my action right now is caused by everything that happened to me previously and what happened to me previously is caused by what happened before that. So that's not true. We do have free will. So it's, it's a balance. On the one hand, everything I did previously brought me here, plus I still have free will. So getting back to our topic of sex, and the reason we're talking about sex, he <laughs> said, why is the sannyasi talking about sex? Because that's the verse I'm discussing. It's talking about brahmacharyam celibacy, unbroken celibacy, akhanditam. Uh, and it's it's said to be dusharam, hard to do. So the Bhagavatam says it's it's hard to be celibate. To be strictly celibate is actually hard. And so a special avatar of Krishna came down to sort of show us how to do it. And so regarding celibacy, I mean, to what extent one is celibate, based on one's ashram, based on one's level of spiritual advancement. Uh, the important point here is to have a good understanding because we are all works in progress. And, you know, hopefully we're doing our best and our best obviously is not perfect, but still it's our best. So uh, there also has to be a balance between 
not being too easy on yourself and not being too hard on yourself. It's exactly analogous to a physical workout. If, if you're doing a physical workout and you're too easy on yourself, there's not much benefit. And if you're too hard on yourself, you'll end up less healthy than when you started. And we see that often serious athletes tend to have more injuries than normal people because they're always pushing themselves. And so uh, any thinking person, any intelligent person can understand why uh, sex is not simply something one does freely. I mean, anyone that doesn't know that really uh, has serious cognitive problems. So the, but the question is, you know, how do I deal with this very powerful material desire? How do I deal with it? How do I manage it? And of course, Krishna has given us a system to manage it called Varnashram. And we do our very best to act within that God-given system. So maybe we'll do one more verse. Um, Dvitiyam, the second, second incarnation to Bhavayasya for the good of the world, for the flourishing of the world. Prabhupada says for the welfare of this earth. Whoops, got a problem here. The earth went down to the lower regions because Hiranyaksha, Goldeye, threw it there. There was a famous James Bond movie called Goldfinger. Here we have Goldeye, like, you know, the eye you see with. So Goldeye, um, through the earth into the nether world, the, which means lower worlds, the Rasatala region, which was not a very nice thing to do. And then Udharisha Nupadatta, and then intending to lift it up, literally uplift it or take it up, the Lord uh, assumed Upadatta took on the Sokaram Vapu. Uh, the form of a hog, which is very, um, how should I put it? It's not good to be too predictable. It's like if everyone always knows what you're going to say and everyone always knows what you're going to do, it means you probably are a little boring. Because, you know, someone's creative and intelligent, you don't know exactly what they're going to say or exactly what they're going to do. That doesn't mean we should be like crazy eccentric, but creative sometimes. And so Krishna is infinitely creative and I think he pretty much faked everyone out. Before Krishna came as a hog, I mean, how many so-called theologians would have predicted, yeah, God's going to come as a hog. So I think Krishna pretty much faked everyone out on this one. And <laughs> Yagyesha, Krishna is the Lord of sacrifice. It's interesting because Lord Bor, if you look elsewhere in the Bhagavatam that has, there's two sections of the Bhagavatam that describe in detail uh, uh, Lord Bor's descent, and both of them emphasize his relationship to sacrifice, that his body is uh, sort of like the personification of sacrifice. Interesting detail. So Krishna came as a boar because boars dig up things from, you know, with their tusks, they dig things out of the earth, dirty places. And so Lord Boar dug out the earth. Uh, so again, 
uh, no one saw this one coming. Lord, you know, God comes as a bore. But it's so uh, lovable. It's so amazing. It shows that Krishna has such a sense of humor and is so creative and playful. And uh, yeah, once you really understand Krishna, nothing else will do. Once you really understand that God is so playful and imaginative and youthful and uh to use an old expression, far out, um, you really can't be satisfied anymore with just sort of a, no offense to any other religion, but sort of a dull, boring, predictable God that just sits on high and, you know, strikes down sinners and blesses good people. And I don't know, I guess that's pretty much what he does. So, uh, but here we have Krishna who's infinitely creative, imaginative, playful. It's once you understand Krishna, you can't go back. You can't be satisfied with other concepts of God. So uh, I will end here. Again, I would like to thank everyone for listening. I now found out how to see your comments. I just had to click one button. Uh, let's see. Uh, are there any questions here? <laughs> Someone sent a funny picture. Uh, okay, here's a question. Disculpe, no preste suficiente atención. Por favor, podría esclarecer si Krishna se presenta. Okay, de forma completa en todas partes, en todo momento. Does Krishna present himself in a complete form everywhere? Well, Krishna is Krishna, so wherever Krishna is there, it's Krishna. At the same time, uh, for example, we know Krishna pervades this universe as Chiro Dakashayu Vishnu, uh, which means Vishnu lies in the milk ocean. So, uh, for example, in Krishna Leela, uh, when Krishna was hiding from the gopis, he appeared as Vishnu, but then the gopis just stared at him and he couldn't hold his disguise, so then he turned into Krishna again. So. So wherever any form of Krishna is, all of Krishna is there, but he manifests in different ways. So uh, let's see, question marks? Oh, see more, okay. Why is it that we are not exactly aware of the specific act or misdeed we committed by which we're suffering today? Wouldn't it be a more pedagogical process? In other words, wouldn't it be easier for us to get the point? Imagine the police take you to jail and don't even tell you the specific crime you committed. Yeah, that, that question is asked a lot. Okay, here are a few points on that. Like, why don't we remember our past lives and how can we really get the point of why we're getting certain karma, reward and punishment if we don't know what it came from? First of all, if you actually remembered all your past lives, you would have the most incredible identity crisis. I mean, first, you would become totally dysfunctional. I mean, imagine your gender issues. If you were remembering, you know, lives as a woman, lives as a man, life as this, life as that, you would have really bad gender issues. You would have an idea, you would basically go, you'd go crazy probably in a very short time because am I this person, am I that person? They're all false egos, but you were all, you were attached to all of them. So it's psychologically impossible for you to actually remember all these things. 
it would life would become totally dysfunctional. That's the first point. Secondly, um, you do know where it came from because I've explained this point many times. Let's say, for example, someone commits a sin. They, they, they kill somebody. They kill another person, and they don't do it as a legal government executioner. They, uh, in a criminal act, a person kills somebody. Now, the actual physical act of, you know, shooting a gun or stabbing or just, you know, whatever horrible way someone did it, poisoning, I won't go into all the different strategies to commit murder. But the physical fact, what the person actually did with their body, remember what Krishna says in the Gita. Krishna says in, uh, I think it's chapter 5, verse, I forget the exact verse number, but someone who knows the truth of life someone who really understands life should think when they are doing things they should actually think i'm not doing anything at all i'm actually not doing anything so what does this mean it means we're not the body the one thing we did do is we committed an act of will. That's called sankalpa in Sanskrit. There's other words for, for will. Um, so we did, so what we really did, our real sin, in a sense, was not the physical act, because that's carried out by nature. Krishna says in the Gita that bewildered by false ego, a person thinks that they're doing something, but it's really nature that's doing it. So how are you responsible? What did you really do? What you really did was, or what I did, is an act of will. We willed to do something. We exercised our free will and we chose to do something. So therefore, the real cause of our suffering by karma or reward is not the physical act, but it's the act of free will. It's actually the act of free will which caused uh, the sin or the pious activity. Now, as we know, I mean, this is explained very much in the, in the Yoga Sutras and, and, and other literatures. Uh, we can, we are able to actually access uh, our deep psychology and find within ourselves the malevolent will. Malevolent means wishing something bad. Volent, like volition, and mal in Spanish, malevolent, malevolent. So therefore, it is not true that you don't know why you're suffering. If you want to know why you're suffering, all you really have to do is just look into your own deep, deep psychology. Look deep within yourself and you will find the desire, the volition, the will that led you to do something that triggered this reaction. So your own consciousness is still available to you, and so you can find out why you're suffering if you have the courage and the honesty to look within yourself, you will find it. The physical act you performed was just an expression of the real problem, which was an act of consciousness. So, and if you actually remembered all the physical acts, you would spend the rest of your time, life probably in a, in a psychiatric facility. 
So um, let's see. Another question. Uh, how can one experience the happiness of the soul where the taste of lower pleasures can be given up easily? Well, practice bhakti yoga. That's what Krishna says. Sadhana bhakti. Sadhana means I may not be fully enlightened, but I still know what's right. I know enough to know that I should do this. And uh, because, you know, comparison shopping. I've experienced Krishna consciousness in my better moments, and I've experienced delusion. And Krishna consciousness is infinitely better, so I'm going to practice Krishna consciousness. Uh, let's see, any other questions? Some people say that Srila Prabhupada is a kind of Shakti Avesha avatar. That can, can, can that, anyway, is that true? Estou traduzindo o inglês para você. Yeah, I mean, what do the words mean? Shakti means power. Avesha means investing. Investing. Uh, investir, invertir in Spanish, investir in Portuguese. So did Krishna invest his power in Prabhupada? Yeah, obviously. I mean, he also invested in us. If you go out to preach or if you, you know, sell books or, or just to try to convince someone, even if you try to encourage a devotee to, to be Krishna conscious. Unless Krishna gives you power, you can't do it. Because the Shastra says, Krishna Shakti Bina Nahi Pravartan. No one can spread this movement without Krishna's Shakti. So everyone, everyone that goes out to spread this movement and who has any success at all has Krishna's Shakti. However, when we say of avatara, that's a different level. On the one hand, we all have Krishna Shakti if we're able to bring even one person to Krishna consciousness or, or, or help people in their spiritual life. On the other hand, to be called an avatara, it's one thing to be Shakti Avesha, which simply means Krishna's given you some potency. So in that sense, we're all Shakti Avesha. But to be Shakti Avesh Avatara, in other words, you have so much of Krishna's power. Say tanto do poder de Krishna. You have so much of Krishna's power that it is as if Krishna himself has come down. And so, uh, how much power is that? You know, it's not like it's not like the shastras give us a scale, that there's okay, there's one to ten, and if you're over eight, then you're an avatar. So, uh, but using some common sense here, Prabhupada had such extraordinary power from Krishna that, yeah, it looks very much like, <laughs> like it, that, that Krishna, in a sense, not only gave Prabhupada power, but that Krishna came in a special way uh, acting through Prabhupada to spread this movement. So it's a practical question, really. Um, okay, let's see if there's anything else here. No, that's it. Answered all the questions. So again, thank you all very much for listening. And uh, I hope to see you all next Sunday. Hare Krishna.